Welcome everyone to episode two of Recreational Thinking. Our guests are Mike Cameron, Amanda Walker, and Jacob Myers. So let's briefly state your name, where you're Skyping from, and maybe one sentence about you. Uh, start with Amanda. Hi, I'm Amanda Walker. I am coming in from Monroe, Wisconsin, about an hour south of Madison. I recently moved here for a reporting job. Jacob. Hi, I'm Jacob Myers. I am Skyping from East Lansing, Michigan, where I'm a student at Michigan State, and I like history maps and such. Cool. And Mike. Hi, I'm Mike Cameron. I'm Skyping from just outside of Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, ironically, in Monroe, North Carolina. And uh, yeah, and uh, (laughs) born and raised around here. And uh, unlike Jacob, geography and maps and such is probably my weakest subject. Ah. Oh, cool. So I don't have to worry about you stealing. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. We we hopefully will avoid the collision we had in the last episode of people with overlapping interests. Oh. What was They were two baseball buffs and one of them had baseball as a specialist category and saw quite a few of his points stolen. Oh, oh, no. So the order is arbitrary, but it is going to be consistent throughout the entire episode. So I just kind of randomly picked Amanda, Jacob, Mike, but that is going to be the order of alternation for the entire episode. So just remember that. Okay. Okay. So this game is going to be in four rounds. The first individual and then the next two specialists, uh, or sorry, the next three specialists. And I'll explain how those work when they start. But this first round, I call the three R's round in that it allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle questions I've written before. Ah. Uh, so these, this is this round is mostly functions as a warm-up, but each of these questions are going to be worth a tenth of a point as tiebreakers. But also, of course, like all of the questions here, there's pride at stake. So for this round only... You're going to answer as individuals. We'll rotate who who goes first, but basically the first person will get a chance to answer. The second will get a chance if the first misses, and the third will get a chance if the first two miss. So the later you go, you'll be less likely to have a good shot at answering, but you'll have more time to pink, and you'll have one or two potential answers taken off the board by the time it gets to you. And we'll rotate, so each of you gets to go first three times, second three times, and third three times. So the first question will start with Amanda. It'll pass to Jacob if she gets it wrong, and to Mike if both of them get it wrong. Question one. The motto of House Targaryen is fire and blood. Which real-life army's motto is blood and fire? Oh, gosh. I do not know. Um, (laughs) It sounds very medieval. I'm amazed that it's current. Um, How about North Korea? North Korea is your answer? Yes. That is incorrect. So pass to Jacob. Uh, so, like Amanda said, that does sound vaguely medieval. So, probably somewhere in Europe, I suppose I'll guess Germany. Germany. All right, that's also incorrect. Mike? Okay, um, you said real-life army. I did. Okay, I think, uh, the, I mean, it's being a little too literal, uh, but if I remember correctly... I believe that this refers to the blood of Christ and the fire of the Holy Spirit for the Salvation Army. Yeah, so this, again, was a little bit of a trick question. It is a real-life army, but not a national army. It is the Salvation Army. Oh! Good one. Good, good get. All right, good job. Okay, so that first one goes to Mike, and the second one we will start with Jacob. The question is, which country withdrew from the 2009 Eurovision Song Contest after its initial entry 
we don't want to put in was barred by the EBU for being political speech. Uh, so 2009, and you said the song title was We Don't Want to Put In? That's right. Um, let's see, maybe like, that refers to something like contributing money to bail out Greece or some such thing, so maybe Germany or definitely some kind of Northern European country. I'm I'm going to go with Germany again. All right, Germany, that's incorrect. This goes to Mike now. Uh, yeah, the Eurovision is one of those entertainment things that I just don't follow at all, so this is just going to be me throwing a, a dart... Um, although, I mean, I guess we do have the political angle in 2009. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll just say Russia, just All right, because. Okay. All right, Russia, that's incorrect. Amanda? I wish my friend Daryl was here instead of me for this question. He is a big Eurovision fan. I do not follow that contest. Um, we don't want to put in. Well, um, I don't know. Was that around the time of the like austerity measures in Greece? I'll, I'll say Greece. All right. So you all kind of were on the right track looking at the geopolitical situation. The connection that none of you made, we don't want to put in, was a bit of a wordplay that was interpreted probably accurately as a slam at Vladimir Putin. In two- <laughs> yes. In 2009, specifically, the, the place who were, the people who were most angry at him due to a conflict in uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Oh, for the people of Georgia. Georgia, yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, so yeah, so Georgia is the correct answer. Number three starts. Let's, uh, start with Mike. Is a question. Dr. Nora Volkov, currently the director of the NIH's National Institute on Drug Abuse, was born in Mexico and is the great granddaughter of which prominent historical figure? Mm, okay. Born in Mexico, but that does not sound like a Mexican name. Um, that's, again, that sounds like a, got a Russian tinge to it. Um, uh, let's see here. Let me see. I'm trying to think. Uh, what? Man, Russia, Russia, Russia. Uh, I, I'll, I'll say Stalin. Stalin is incorrect. Uh, I think goes next to Amanda. I am very excited about this because I know a question finally, or I think I do. I think it's going to be someone who met a unfortunate end in Mexico, Trotsky. <gasps> oh. Right, so you you triangulated just just as Mike was trying to do. You triangulated the Russian name and Mexico, and went with probably the most famous Russian who died in Mexico, Leon Trotsky. Yes. Good job. Yay. Thank you. Again, these are for That's pride, fun. and I wasn't feeling much pride so far. <laughs> so far, we have, yeah, one, one for Mike, one for Amanda, and now question four will start with Amanda. One of the greatest of all real-life Christmas miracles took place when the SS Meredith Victory, a merchant marine freighter built for about a dozen passengers, somehow rescued about 14,000 refugees from a port that is now located in which country? Okay. Could you repeat the question? There was a lot of information there. Sure. One of the greatest of all real-life Christmas miracles took place when the SF Meredith Victory, a merchant marine freighter built for about a dozen passengers, somehow rescued approximately 14,000 refugees from a port that is now located in which country? 
Okay, so we're back to questions that I do not know. I'm trying to think if like there's anything I can get a clue from Christmas Miracle. I'm guessing that it just happened like around Christmas time. Um, Meredith Victory. Those names do not jump out at me for any particular reason. Um, I'll just say Canada. Canada? That's incorrect. Goes to Jacob now. Now, did you say anything about what year it is? I did not. Okay, hmm. So... I also do not know anything about the SS Meredith victory. Um, like, my first thought is that this somehow involves the Dunkirk evacuation, which, oh. in that case, I don't know why you'd say modern-day country, and I don't think that was around Christmas. So, like, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of, wh- of where else the U.S. would have been evacuating refugees from around that time. Like, it... I don't know why I'm like hung up on World War II. This this definitely sounds like mid-century-ish to earlier. Maybe it's like Korea or Vietnam. I'll go with South Korea. All right, go with South Korea. That's incorrect. Mike? <sighs> These are hard. <laughs> um, man, um, I think I'm going to be ashamed because I think that the Meredith victory is probably in reference to Meredith College here in North Carolina. Um, and I don't know this answer. I mean, I have, uh, wow. Um, I'll, I'll just, wow, let's see here. I, I'll just go, um, I'll go the next war after Korea and say Vietnam. So I did I did deliberately withhold the date because I thought that might be too direct a hint. Just again, so this is just for pride. Uh, if it if I told you the year was 1950, would that narrow it down? What year did you was is that 15 or 50? Zero? 50. Zero. Zero. I would have probably still said South Korea. Right. So so Jacob yeah Jacob what yeah. Yes, Jacob was thinking along the right lines, uh, the right conflict. Specifically, these 14,000 refugees were taken to South Korea. They were oh, evacuated from Hongna toward mm. in what is now North Korea. Oh, wow. Oh, oh, wow. Wow, you were so close. Yeah, that was very close. To... All right. It, it's funny that you said that when you said, if I said the year, I was going to say, that would have made me more likely to guess what Jacob did. <laughs> right, yeah. But it would have it would have drawn yeah, it would have drawn you all to Korea, I think, and would have so within three guesses, I think you would have probably landed on North Korea. Oh yeah, we would have landed on North Korea. Uh, yeah, there are hope. only two of those. Yeah, we would, we would have run out of Koreas before we ran out of guesses. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So the next question starts on Jacob. This I took this out of Amanda's specialist round because I didn't want to slant the game too much toward her. Oh. Uh, <laughs> All right, uh, so we'll start on Jacob and go last to Amanda. Oh, okay. All right, Gary Marshall made several on-screen cameo appearances in The Odd Couple, Laverne and Shirley, and Happy Days, nearly always as a man playing which musical instrument? Or defining musical instrument a little broadly. Oh, good God. <laughs> this happened decades before I was alive. Well, uh, me too, Jacob. I'm t- <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm terrible at boomer television. You're saying instrument defined broadly? Yeah. Like it is something that everyone would recognize as a musical instrument. It's not like some weird thing only uses an instrument in that context. Yeah, you'll guess I think so yeah, instrument the, defined broadly makes it harder. Not e- I think that confuses it a little. All right, I'll just say I'll, I'll give a little bit of latitude in accepting possible answers. That sounds better. Yeah, okay. don't let that way. You just pretend he said playing. All right. So, what what instrument 
different would like people being goofy from like 1950s sitcoms play <laughs> i know laverne and shirley was like set near a beer factory or something so i don't know i i associate like accordions and polkas with beer so i'm gonna go with accordion all right that's a good guess but not correct mike can you give me the rundown of the sitcoms again yeah the odd couple laverne and shirley and happy days okay uh, yeah. i'm sorry go ahead so yeah, all, basically all shows he was credited as developer or creator on. Right, right. Oh, wow. Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, those are all in the era that I would have been watching them, and I definitely would have, you know, been a much as of, of a TV nerd to go, oh, that's Gary Marshall. I don't remember any of these. I think Accordion's a great guess. I'm going to, I'll, I'll say the harmonica. All right. Also a good guess, but incorrect. Amanda? It was definitely, uh, definitely leveled the playing field to make me go last here. He played the drums. Yeah, and in any scenes that are uh, set in like a nightclub or anywhere there's a band on stage, look closely and you'll often see Gary Marshall sitting behind a drum kit. Oh, okay. Nice. So, yeah, technically, <laughs> yes. a fun one, though. Yeah, I guess technically you could call a drum kit multiple instruments, which is why I was being a little cagey with the wording. But. Uh, I see. Okay. Yeah. All right. So the next one, it okay, starts one with Mike. All right. So this has a little bit of a backstory. It goes back to my freshman year of college. My friends and I were hanging out, and we wanted to watch a movie, and we got a bu- bunch of DVDs and voted. And after a surprisingly contentious battle, the winners were Woody Allen's Love and Death and Blake Edwards' A Shot in the Dark. And yes, this was in the early 2000s. We were not typical college kids. Sure. Uh, so afterwards, I, of course, being an inveterate credits watcher, I noticed the same name pop up in the cast of both of those movies. A Norwegian dancer named Tute Lemkel had very small parts in both of those movies. On looking him up, I discovered he was better known for playing the title role in what Best Picture Oscar-nominated musical? Mm, okay. Could you give me the name again? Yeah. I'm not 100% on the pronunciation, but Tute, T-U-T-T-E, and Lemkow, L-E-M-K-O-W. Oscar title role? This was a, a movie musical that was nominated for the Best Picture Academy Award. And you said he played the title role, or am I... Title role, or, yes. Okay. I mean... The I'm I don't I, there's no way this could be right um, unless it's because uh, I know that Topol was the start in Fiddler on the Roof. Then maybe this was his stage name. Maybe he adopted that name later. So I'm just going to say Fiddler on the Roof. All right. Is that Fiddler on the Roof you're locking in? Yes. All right. So uh, this is probably a good good hint for the entire game to pay very close attention to wording. I did say he played the title role. I did not say he played the protagonist or the main character. He did, in fact, play the fairly small role of the Fiddler on the Roof in Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, oh. no way. No way. Okay. I'll take it. <laughs> I, I, I walked ass backwards right into it, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> you really right. did. Like I was thinking Fiddler on the Roof just because I was like, I don't know who played Tevya. Well, you did. And I was like, oh, he's going to eliminate that as an answer. I don't know what I'm going to say. And oh, <laughs> uh-huh. <sighs> 
Clever. Tricky. <laughs> nice. All right. Okay, so now that we have two each for Mike and Amanda, and the next one starts on Amanda. This is the last cycle of these questions. All right. Amanda, with the help of conspirators that included John Jocelyn, ironically a direct descendant of King Edward I, four students named Ian Hamilton, Gavin Vernon, Kay Matheson, and Alan Stewart successfully stole which object in 1950? Okay, so the fact that it's ironically... That's- that someone was a descendant of was it King Edward the First leads me to think it's stealing something British. So I'm going to say the crown jewels. All right, crown jewels. That's a good guess, but uh, incorrect. Jacob, um, could you repeat? Could you repeat the question? I have an idea based on the fact that it's Edward the First specifically, but please. All right. With the help of conspirators that included John Jocelyn, ironically a direct descendant of King Edward the First, four students named Ian Hamilton, Gavin Vernon, Kay Matheson, and Alan Stewart successfully stole which object in 1950? Okay. So, I don't know. The fact that it's students doing this makes me feel like this could be a sort of prank thing, but Edward the First is known for invading Scotland, you know, Hammer of the Scots. So maybe the Stone of Scone? I don't have a better guess, so I'll go with that. All right, so Edward I, I think Longshanks is, was played by Patrick McGowan in Braveheart, was known for his playing a role in the conquering of Scotland. And the Stone of, it's spelled Scone, I think it's often pronounced Scone. It's used in the uh, coronation of English kings, which has always been a sore point with Scotland because they see it as an artifact taken from them. And so in 1950, these four Scottish students at an act of patriotism stole the Stone of Scone and returned it to Scotland. I did not know that. That's excellent. That That is awesome. And I thought of it after you were reading the question for the second time. Too late. Not always an advantage to go first, as you said. <laughs> All right. Next question starts with Jacob. The late Adrian Shelley created the name of Dr. Pomatter, the character played by Nathan Fillion in the 2007 film Waitress and Drew Gelling in its 2016 Broadway musical adaptation, by mashing together the surnames of three of her favorite members of what collective or group? I'm deliberately using a vague noun there. You said Pomatter, am I correct? Yes. P-O-M-A-T-T-E-R. Hmm. So the natural divisions there seem to me to be like Poe, Matt, and Tur. So I'm just blanking. I have no idea what this could be. Um, I think I'll pass. All right, pass, Mike. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, even if we throw the gym in there, I don't know, Jim, Poe, Matt, Tur. There wasn't any first name. I didn't give you a first name at least. It was just Doctor Poe Matter. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I, I just. Uh, I remember his name was Jim from the from the movie though. Okay. Um, and I guess that's where I got that from. Uh, of course, it not not that it helps. And you said she she was inspired by by what again? By taking Uh-oh. the surnames of three real life people and mashing them together. Uh, I don't know. The first trio that came to mind for me was, uh, although it doesn't make sense, would be uh, the band members of Rush. I'll just say Rush. I know it's not right, but... All right, Bill. At least, yeah, always guess when there's no penalty to guess. All right, Amanda? Uh, I have no idea. I did write this down and was trying to look at them and push them together. I'll say Peter, Paul, and Mary. All right, so Jacob going first did break the name down pretty correctly. Poe, Matter. If you expand those, you get Posada, Matt, and Jeter. Um, yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's the collective. Yep. All members of uh, her favorite baseball team, the New York Yankees. Oh, Dear Lord. 
<laughs> okay, and then the last well, last one starts with Mike. This is a, a fun question, has, but has a lot of information in it, so listen carefully. Composer and self-proclaimed bad boy of music George Antheil hung out with the likes of Igor Stravinsky, Jean Cocteau, Ezra Pound, and Man Ray. He scored the avant-garde ballet mécanique and the noir classic In a Lonely Place. His acclaimed opera Transatlantic combined Greek myth with satire of American politics. He wrote a mystery novel and a nationally syndicated newspaper advice column. But if we remember him at all today, it is because of one woman, the woman alongside whom he was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Who was she? Oh, man, yeah, that's that's a lot of information. Um, so, and so they were inducted together, as in what they worked on together is what got them both in, I'm assuming. Um, the reasonable inference. Okay. Can you spell the name? Yes. George, like regular George, Antheil, A-N-T-H-E-I-L. Okay, thank you. Um, is that a woman? You know, just uh, another shot in the dark. I'm going to my, my favorite um, all-time inventor female story is that it was Hedy Lamar who helped uh, develop Bluetooth. So I'll just say Hedy Lamar because she's like, you know, awesome. So Hedy Lamar, yeah, her invention was based on the idea of frequency hopping, which is still used in uh, cell phone or Bluetooth technology today. Uh, but it was specifically based on the idea of using piano rolls in order to create this hopping of frequencies. And so her collaborator was a composer and musician, George Antheil. And Hedy Lamar is the correct answer. That That's was awesome. just a shot in the dark again. Just like, Good job, I mean, man. wow. That's okay. great. I'll, again, I'll take it. Yeah. All right. So I believe at the end of that round, we have two correct answers for Amanda, one for Jacob, and three for Mike. All right. Okay. Right. Okay. So now we'll move into the special round. Originally, the idea was these were supposed to go from easy, medium to hard. And I shall realize, you know, with this, the quality of people I know, no, no one wants to waste their time on easy questions. So I'll instead I have labeled them uh, not all that hard, only somewhat hard, and super hard. Okay. <laughs> how would you rank the questions you just asked us? Those were all from what I specifically called the super hard quiz. So they were super hard. Good. Okay. okay good. good. I'm, I'm yeah. glad to hear that. I'm excited to see what super hard African literature you can come up with. <laughs> oh, God. That's what this is? Well, no, I should say, because we gave Yogesh a few categories, right? So we don't know which one of our categories he's going to pick. Right. And I, yeah, so I, I, I again, as I told you before, they, your special category will not be sampled from equally, and the questions are more of a prompt to kind of uh, build connections off of. So these questions are not intended to be a fair or comprehensive test of your expertise or your knowledge in those categories. They're just a base to work off of, and they may relate only indirectly. And to keep people off balance, I won't reveal any of the categories in advance. Okay. Right. So, so for this round, you'll each get three questions directed at you. But before you get to answer, your opponents get to work together to try and steal the points from you. So you'll only get the points if your opponents miss. Sometimes, especially in later rounds, I might try and build suspense by passing the question to you without telling you if your opponents were successful in stealing it. In those cases, even if you think they got it right, it's in your best interest to proceed as if they got it wrong, because you won't get any points if you just copy their answer. Sure. Uh, so these questions are going to be worth, in this round, as two points as a steal, 
one is a specialist, and the points will be given to both Steelers if they are successful, even if only one of them knows the answer. So there's a little bit of luck here in who you're working with, and uh, you get to confer with the other potential Steeler. Okay. So the first question will initially be directed to Jacob and Mike working together to try and steal from Amanda. Okay. All right? All right, let's do this. Cry me a river. Just let me cry. Cry and you cry alone. Cry and Judy's turn to cry are five tracks from whose 1963 album, I'll Cry If I Want To. Oh, I, I know, like, It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To is like a Leslie Gore song. Um, do you have a better guess? Mm. You said, what was the year of the album again? 1963. Yeah, and she was right around that time, I believe. Could, could you repeat the first two titles? Yeah, the first two were Cry Me a River and Just Let Me Cry. I don't know. I do, 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 you, do you have a better guess? I'm... No, I don't. Um, I mean, Leslie Gore does sound... Uh, is that, yeah, I mean, 1963. Yeah, I like... That, that sounds good. I mean, that's, that's you know, it's my party and I'll cry if I want to. I guess she did a whole theme album. So, yeah, I'm I'm perfectly fine with uh, Leslie Gore. I mean, that's that's a great answer, and I'm not going to come with anything to better. All right, let's do it. All right, so you're locking in Leslie Gore? Yeah. All right, yes, yes we so, are. So Judy's Turn to Cry was the first track on the second side of that album. It was a direct sequel to the first track, which was It's My Party, which is also the song. The lyrics... The title is taken from the lyrics of that song, and it is by Leslie Gore. Okay, good job. Oh, right. Good you job hit, on the steel, guys. You hit you you hit one of my pockets of deep boomer music knowledge. <laughs> cool, cool. All How right. How much so this, deep boomer music knowledge do you have? Quite a lot. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll we'll see if any of that that may or may not come in helpful later. All right. Amanda and Mike now trying to steal from Jacob. Okay. In a coincidence that can only be called loony. The 1996 U.S. Senate general election in Virginia pitted against each other two unrelated men who shared what surname. And I'll give you a hint. One of them used to be married to Elizabeth Taylor. Okay. Um, I can name a few men married to Elizabeth Taylor. What about you? Uh, I mean, yeah. Um, uh, Mike Todd is one. Uh, Nikki Hilton. Um, Richard Burton. Richard Burton. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh eddie fisher um okay but none of those are so far none of those are associated I, all i can think of is looney tunes as that reference being uh yeah looney. So what, can you name any uh other elizabeth taylor husbands i think you've named all the ones that i could name so um i mean burton, there's there's so burton, many burton burton hilton uh warner fisher, fisher oh, todd warner. Warner. Oh, Warner. Yes, yes, John Warner. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but we're just going to go with Warner. We're going to say Warner, yeah. Warner uh, for the Looney Tunes, Warner Brothers. Yeah. All right, so you're locking in Warner? Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the men were, uh, they were not brothers, uh, but unlike the, the people behind the studio that made Looney Tunes, but they were both named Warner. Yeah, John, good teamwork. Nice. Was one of them Mark Warner? Yeah, John Warner had been was I think the sixth or so husband of Elizabeth Taylor, and Mark Warner was the other. So two points go to Amanda and Mike. And now the next this question goes first to Jacob and Amanda trying to steal from Mike. So one of my favorite quotes from a commencement address, 
goes like this. People will tell you to do what makes you happy, but a lot of this has been hard work, and I'm not always happy. And I don't think you should do just what makes you happy. I think you should do what makes you great. Do what's uncomfortable and scary and hard, but pays off in the long run. Be willing to fail. Let yourself fail. Fail in the way, in the place where you would want to fail. Fail, pick yourself up, and fail again. Because without this struggle, what is your success anyway? So these ironclad words of wisdom were delivered by Charlie Day in his 2014 commencement address at what alma mater of his? A small college that shares its name with a river in New England, not Virginia. Um, okay, so obviously Charlie Day was on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Sunny Philadelphia, right. Yeah, so that shares its name with a river in New England, not Virginia. So, gee, I don't know. Can you name any rivers in either of those places? Uh... I d- oh, could this be like Merrimack? Cause like the, the <gasps> yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, cause like the USS Merrimack is most notable for like getting killed by the USS Virginia. Sure, let's go Merrimack. So you're locking in Merrimack? Yes, we are. All right. I think the uh, yeah, you have the story a little turned around. The the USS Merrimack was sunk. It was raised up and turned it into became CSS. the USS Virginia. CSS Virginia. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, your your logic was uh, along the right line. Charlie Day is a graduate of Merrimack College or University right. in Massachusetts. Yeah, in Massachusetts. Okay, so those two points are shared by Amanda. And for the record, that was two points well earned because I wasn't going to get that anyway. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. All right. And uh, yeah, now we have bunched together the scores at the end of that cycle of Jacob at 4.1, Amanda at 4.2, and Mike at 4.3. Okay. Very closely bunched together. All right. This one goes to Jacob and Mike trying to steal from Amanda. A 1982 episode of Happy Days guest starred a pre-famed Tom Hanks as a man seeking revenge on Fonzie for a long-ago childhood bullying incident. In critiquing Hanks' character's single-minded quest for vengeance, the now-mature Fonzie repeatedly invokes the plot of what 1956 classic film? And I'll just, I'll take, there was a classic 1956 film of Moby Dick, but that plot is more from the book. So I'll take that off the table. I'll tell you it's not Moby Dick. (laughs) (laughs) God Um, damn it. More happy days. Yeah. (laughs) I have absolutely nothing, as I'm sure you're well aware. Uh, What a 1956 film that involves revenge. Uh, uh, Maybe some kind of spaghetti western. I don't, okay. Just things out. I, 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 I know it's not the right year, but I definitely remember a classic uh, episode where um, they they kept referencing the uh, Barnum Brando and the Wild Ones. But I know that's not a 1956 film. Um, I do not I'm, have a better guess. I'm I'm actually going to go out on a limb here, a little goofy on this. Um, I'm sure Amanda's gonna to get it, uh, but a revenge flick, I think. The sequel to uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon came out around that time, and it was called Revenge of the Creature. So uh, I would personally go with the Wild One. Okay, that's fine. Uh, we can go with the Wild One. But, like but, but I, I don't know. How certain are you that the year is wrong? Uh, about 80%, because I think it came out in the early 50s and not the mid to late 50s. I okay, want to sure. say go that with the it Black was. Lagoon thing, then. Yeah, we'll, we'll get Revenge of the Creature. Um, just just because that's got a goofy ring to it. All right. Uh, Revenge of the Creature, are you locked in? Yeah. All right. Uh, Amanda? <laughs> I um I remember this episode a bit, and I remember there was a pre-fame 
Tom Hanks. Um, I also almost want to say his name was Dwayne Twitchell, um, and he pushed him off the swing in third grade. But do I remember the movie Fonzie reference? No, I don't. Um, so I'm trying to think of the kind of things that Fonzie would reference. Like, he really likes, I mean, a Brando movie is a great guess because that's totally Fonzie's jam. Brando, James Dean, you know, Maverick, strong, silent types. Revenge. 1956. Is there any revenge involved in High Noon? I'll say High Noon. All right, you're locking in High Noon? Yeah. I think the, the movie you were thinking of, Mike, is actually called The Wild One. Uh, but they, okay. yeah, those are, yeah, those are both from the early 50s. 1956, so this was, yeah, a late period Happy Days episode after uh, Ron Howard had left and when Ted McGinley was in the cast. Throughout the episode, Fonzie keeps trying to invoke this film only to discover that no one has seen it, including Tom Hanks' character, until finally Ted McGinley gets his one shot, uh, moment of glory uh, from his episode of the show. The one thing he did that made me laugh, he <laughs> beams and says uh, very clearly, I've seen The Searchers. Oh! oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> John Wayne is a man obsessed with revenge. It influenced many later films, including Taxi Driver. Yeah. Um, all right. So no points for anyone on that. We remain bunched up. And the next question goes to Amanda and Mike, trying to steal from Jacob. As part of Operation Manta, M-A-N-T-A, sanctioned by the Mitterrand government, France drew a red line at the 15th, later moved to the 16th parallel, in order to limit Libya's interference in what nation? Okay. Where um, would... Do you happen... Okay. I don't happen to just know, no. So I'm, I'm just thinking <laughs> aloud with no, you. Do you know what what borders Libya? Um, I know I mean, this I cold, know... no pressure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no pressure. He knows it, no pressure. Well, in a way, that's no pressure because we know we're not giving him extra time to think of it. He already knows it. Yeah, that's it. true. That's he true. Okay. Deliberate it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, Egypt borders it to the... Well, I guess we're talking about 15th parallel or whatever. It doesn't matter east or west. We're looking at, I guess we want to know south, because north is just Mediterranean, right? Right, yeah. Um. So what's south of Libya? Um. Okay. Mm, that, okay, I'm tr- trying to think of all the ones that I know are up there. Uh, like you said, Egypt's up there. Tunisia's up there. I mean, I, what, what, tr- trying to eliminate the well, ones those, that would be yeah, to the and east. Those are like right next to Libya. They wouldn't be below it. Right, right. And I'm just trying to eliminate sure, the sure, ones sure. that I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, is Sudan below it? That's a possibility. Was France in Sudan? Because it would probably be a place France had vested interest in. I don't know. Uh... But I think that's vaguely the right place. So maybe we should just go with that. And uh... I think, actually, if I remember correctly, I think France had a big presence in Chad, didn't they? It was Would Chad be below Libya? Is that right, or is it one that's next to it? You know, I think Chad might be further west, but my African geography is not super strong, so... Okay. I mean, I mean, we can go Sudan. I mean, it. Well. I mean, I don't have a good reason not to say that. Okay. Okay, so we'll we'll say Sudan then. Yeah, we'll go Sudan. Okay. All right, locked in Sudan. You locked in Sudan? Yeah, we're locked in Sudan. All right, Jacob. It's Chad. <laughs> ah! 
yeah, like the conflict between Livy and Chad at the time was called the Toyota War, which is an excellent conflict name. Uh, that was <laughs> just in Learned League yesterday, the Toyota War. Yeah. Oh, come on. Yeah. Oh, All right. So Jacob, I'm, has sorry, I'm sorry, Mike. I really, but like I said, my action geography is not great. I pictured Chad further west, but obviously I was wrong. No, I mean, I had no thunder on Chad at all. I mean, I was just going by, you know, when you said uh, French troops, you know, uh, France have a vested interest that triggered something. But again, my my geography is going to be worse than yours, I promise. Oh, man, that we were so we were so close to being like a team on that, too. We just yeah, it. you were. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Ah. All right. So Jacob pushed himself into the lead on that one. And let's see if he can extend it working with Amanda to try and steal from Mike. Here's a question. Trask Industries and Stark Industries are both corporations in the Marvel Comics universe. Which actor only had three starring roles in his entire movie career, two of which, coincidentally, were as characters named Cal Trask and Jim Stark? Oh, yeah. So, Cal Trask, that was in East of Eden, and Jim Stark, three starring roles. So this sounds a lot like James Dean. Yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that. All right, let's go. James Dean. James All right. James Dean, you locked in, and, uh, yeah, the, uh, those were in East of Eden and Rebel Without a Cause. His other starring role was as Jet Rink in Giant. And so you have successfully stolen on that, and Jacob extends his lead. All right. Good job, guys. Thank you. All right. Next one, Jacob and Mike trying to steal from Amanda. What does British philosopher Philippa Foote, who in 1967 introduced what is now known as the trolley problem, most notably have in common with the young girl who died at the age of 12 and was claimed by Curtis Candy Company to be the namesake of the Baby Ruth candy bar. What? All right. What does British philosopher Philippa Foote, who in 1967 introduced... No, I heard what... you. Just... Yeah. Oh. I don't mind saying <laughs> Do we know anything about the Baby Ruth baby? Okay. So, a child who died at the age of 12... Okay, um, all right, so the the Baby Ruth candy bar was not named after Babe Ruth. It was mm-hmm. uh, actually uh, named after um, Grover Cleveland's daughter. Oh. that That is the only inroad I have to anything, okay? Okay, that's that's actually very helpful. Uh, maybe, like, the, so maybe, maybe they were like, wait a sec, the surname Foot, like, I know Michael Foote's a British politician, so like they, so maybe she was in a political family, maybe like the children of heads of state. Your silence is disconcerting. Well, because you said that. Okay, first of all, you got the the, the trolley problem was introduced in the '60s, I think you said, right? Yeah, and like Michael Foote was in the '80s, but I'm thinking like perhaps he married another politician's daughter. Would be my thought there. Well, no, I mean, but baby Ruth, well, I mean, but, but Ruth Cleveland died when she was 12 years old. Yeah, and that, okay. and neither of those precludes them being, like, head of state's daughters. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's fine. We'll, we'll go that, that she was, uh, uh, I don't know, that seems a little too vague, though, don't you think? I don't know, like, it's. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just seems a little too general, but again, I've got nothing I don't have anything better either. Yeah, so, so um so they were both that. yeah, they were both um, you know, uh, daughters of heads of state, sure. That's your answer, daughters of heads of state? Yeah. Uh, yes. All right. I'll uh, I'll keep quiet and pass it over to Amanda. Well, if he's keeping quiet, probably right. I I don't know. 
Um, so I really don't know either. I remember, I think it was Benningram who posted something, some surprising fact about Philip Afoot. And we were like, what? And I don't remember what the fact was. And I'm thinking it's going to be something related to Ruth Cleveland somehow. Do I know anything else about Ruth Cleveland except that she's the namesake of the baby Ruth candy bar? Um, and they already put the name, the names after a candy bar thing in there. So... That's not it. Um, they being Yogesh writing this question. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I would like to say that this is in no way related to my topic of specialty. It is, but very obliquely as Yogesh warned. <laughs> uh, um, and it's also vaguely related to one of my other topics of specialty, which is also not helping me here. Um, I really... I. But they're they're both the great aunts of famous people. I do not know. So uh, I do sometimes have to make executive decisions. Which Are you going to prompt us? So I think you're. So yeah, depending on the level of specificity, sometimes certain things can earn a prompt. I think in this case, you were just a little too vague even to earn the prompt. Oh. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> sure. Uh, so, okay, so the Babe Ruth came, it was introduced in the, at the height of Babe Ruth's popularity. In a de facto sense, it almost certainly was named for Babe Ruth, but they did not have rights to do so. So they've always claimed it was named after Ruth Cleveland, despite the fact she died at the age of 12 several decades earlier. <laughs> she was the daughter of Grover Cleveland. Another daughter of Grover Cleveland was named Esther Cleveland, and she was the mother of Philippa Foote. Oh, uh, sorry, oh. you were right, it was too vague. So they yeah. were both... Descendants of Grover Cleveland. Direct descendants of Grover Cleveland. Grover Cleveland, yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, I wasn't getting there. <laughs> no, Even if he had prompted us, yeah, I, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have zeroed in on Grover Cleveland being the sole connecting factor. That was that was good knowledge on Baby Ruth, though. Yeah. All right. Okay. The next question goes to uh, again, kind of very oblique, but oh, it looks like we have two candy questions in a row. Uh-oh. All right. This goes to Amanda and Mike trying to steal from Jacob. A 2009 legislative resolution to make applets and cutlets the state candy of Washington was defeated in part due to opposition from what Puget Sound City, the home of Brown and Haley, which manufacture such rival confections as Almond Roca and Mountain Bar? Mm. Well, Brown and Haley's in Tacoma. Okay. Uh, I'm I'm from Washington State, so. I don't live there anymore. Uh, I just very recently moved. Um, and yeah, I feel I'm trying to think if there's any other, um, you know, if there's something I'm forgetting or, but yeah, I think it's Tacoma. Boom. I mean, you, you live there, you know, Brown and Haley's in uh, Tacoma, Washington. I, I, I don't see <laughs> any reason not to go with that. Okay. I feel like I'm not positive it's in Tacoma, but that was the first thing that popped into my head. Okay. And, Okay, uh, we'll we'll say. Well, first of all, let me ask you this: Is Tacoma in the Puget Sound? Uh, yes, it's like. Okay. It's, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. Go. <laughs> Good clarification. Okay, yeah, I'll we'll say Tacoma. Logging in Tacoma. All right. Yeah. So I'm right now in Washington State, but way at the other end of it. So you have uh-huh. a more direct local connection, and that uh, got you very quickly to the answer. So <laughs> we'll uh, move on from there. Get uh, two points for Amanda and Mike. I don't really feel bad about that. (laughs) And that pushes Amanda into the lead for now. All right, one more question left in this somewhat Also, I'd like to give a shout-out. Apples and Cotlets is from just, like, five... 10 minutes from 10 minutes from where i grew up and it's it's in localizing cashmere washington basically turkish delight 
Yes, okay. but it was uh, it was created by Armenian immigrants who were not about to call it Turkish delight. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and the last question of this round goes to Jacob and Amanda trying to steal from Mike. All right. All right. Three years after wrapping up her Emmy-nominated role as the gorgeous secret agent Casey on the original run of Mission Impossible, Linda Day George memorably guest-starred as Nazi villainess Fausta Grables on the second episode of what TV series? No knowledge. Oh. This is all you. Okay. Um, Fausta Grables, what TV? So it's be some spy series, right? Like, um... Maybe? Like what? Maybe, I don't know. Oh, you're saying maybe it might be a spy series. That's what the first thing I thought of, so it could be like... Wait a sec, Fausta Grables, the name is vaguely familiar, but I don't know from where. Were there any old shows that you watched? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh... Uh, yeah. Like, well, like, Get Smart or The Man from Uncle or. Ooh, were either of those set in, like, Nazi times? Uh, I don't remember the. You know, I think those were both more set in the Cold War. Yeah, they were set during the Cold War, so no. Um, I mean, Hogan's Heroes was set, like, in a Nazi POW camp, but. Wait a sec, wait a sec. Hmm. Like, I know where I recognize that name from now. What? She, that, that was, like, the name of the villain from Wonder Woman, like, the movie. Oh! Oh! Well, then that's that. Then it's Wonder Woman the show. I didn't know that was a TV show, but sure. Yeah, it's a TV show. Oh, good. Good teamwork. This was another good teamwork question. I mean, first we have to be told we're right. Yogesh, our answer is Wonder Woman. All right, your answer is Wonder Woman. So in the elasticity of timelines, the movie Wonder Woman is actually set during World War One, but the woman who... Uh, Gal Gadot's uh, character takes her that blue dress from is in fact called Fausta Grables. Generally in continuity, she was associated with the Nazi era. The television series Wonder Woman was mostly set uh, in its contemporary era of the 70s, but the first season was actually set in the 40s, hence why uh, her partner love interest Steve Trevor suddenly became Steve Trevor Jr., the son of Steve Trevor who looked and sounded exactly like him. Uh, <laughs> and oh my God, this, this is a lot of series continuity stuff. <laughs> wow, that's wow. That was again. I'm sure that was really good teamwork because yeah. yeah. I right. mean, like I didn't know, I didn't recognize that name at all. But and you didn't know it was a show. But our powers combined. Yep. Yeah, I was, I was, I was so hoping that y'all weren't gonna stumble into it. Yeah, uh-huh. I, I was, I was just sitting here going, okay, this is the first season of Wonder Woman. When it was, when, when it was set during World War Two, before after season two, two through five, they, they, they moved it into the seventies, but. <laughs> No, y'all got it. Good job. Huh. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I was I was never a huge fan of Linda Day George on Mission Impossible, but I was very entertained by her performance in that episode, mainly because her character was considerably more competent than everyone else, including the good guys. She was followed yeah. not by the good guys, but by the fact that her superiors were incompetent and chauvinistic, and huh, huh. she didn't know what she was doing because she was a woman. And at the end of the episode, she defects to uh, the good guy side, not due to rejecting Nazi ideology, but just because she's sick of being mansplained to. <laughs> That's Queen. a story. Okay, so at the end of that uh, first specialist round, our scores are Amanda, 10.2, Jacob, 9.1, Mike, 6.3, and now we proceed to the only somewhat hard questions, which are <laughs> going to be four points for a steal and three points if you get them on specialist. And we'll start with Jacob and Mike trying to steal from Amanda. 
What philosopher, best known for his argument that the fairest principles can be derived from the original position behind the veil of ignorance, shares both a surname and home city with the commanding officer played by John Doman on The Wire, which may or may not be an intentional homage. Okay, I know this cold. So the veil of ignorance is a concept from the philosophy of John Rawls. Have you ah. watched The Wire, and can you back it yes. up? Yes, Okay, yes. so it's Rawls. Yeah, it's Rawls. All right, so yeah, John Doman played uh, major roles on The Wire. I once heard David Simon talk about his underlying philosophy, and it sounded very Rawlsian, which made me always think that it was... Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But never got any confirmation on that, so uh, John Rawls is correct, also from David Simon's home city of Baltimore, and that's four points for Jacob and four for Mike. Okay, now Amanda and Mike trying to steal from Jacob. Zero Mostel's role in The Front as a blacklisted comedian could be said to be semi-autobiographical, but unlike his fictional counterpart, Mostel managed to recover from the McCarthy-era blacklist by winning three Tony Awards in the 1960s. One was as Pseudolus in A Funny Thing Happened the Way to the Forum, one was as Tevia in Fiddler on the Roof, and the other was as John in what French play that has been cited as an inspiration for horror films ranging from Invasion of the Body Snatchers to Zombie Strippers? Oh, okay. Well, I do not know. Okay, could you could you do that again for me, please? All right, so I'll get to basically the key part at the end. Zero yeah. Mostel, a Tony Award for playing John in the 1960s in the Broadway production of what originally French play that has been cited as an inspiration for horror films ranging from Invasion of the Body Snatchers to Zombie Strippers. Okay, I think this is the very weird French avant-garde piece called Rhinoceros. Oh, oh. I, 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 just, I just know that because of the... Because of the, you know, weird avant-gardeness uh, of it and its influence on, you know, um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is basically, you know, I think it's called rhinocerization, where they, where you uh, get get swayed into like, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, like how Hitler persuaded Germany to basically, you know, kill a bunch of Jews to do like, do like a really bad, horrible analogy. But, you know, yeah. just, just just getting caught up in the, the fervor of, of like a nationalist movement, no matter how insane it is in hindsight. OK, do you know, do you know any of the plot of Rhinoceros? Um, Just that it um, is, you know, it, I guess it has something to do with that, to be honest with you. Uh, I mean, I, I couldn't name any of the characters. I had no idea that Zero Mostel, you know, was was in it and and won an award, won a Tony for it. Um, but I, I'm just familiar with the history of it and its influence on you know modern cinema as as sure. the decades progressed. Okay, That's it. well, I think that is vastly more than anything I had going on in my head about this. So I think we should go with it. All right. So you're locking in Rhinoceros. Yes. All right. Do you know who wrote it? Um, I was trying to think. Is it Ionesco? Yeah, Eugene Ionesco. Yes. Was born, Good job. Born in Romania to a uh, French uh, father or mother. One of his parents was French. And yes, the film is Rhinoceros. If you go to its Wikipedia page, it does ex- actually say that it does actually list zombie strippers as being based on it. And it has a citation to a Hollywood Reporter review, which does, in fact, make that claim. I click through. OK. All right. So that puts uh, Mike into the lead just a tenth of a point more than Amanda. 
and Jacob very close behind. Next question goes to Jacob and Amanda trying to steal from Mike. This is what I call an X question. So I've deleted something that I've replaced with X and it's your job to set to essentially solve for X. What X? It's not a, it's not an actual math problem, but that's the principle behind it. Okay. That'd be great right. if someone, someone's areas of expertise was math and you had to find ways to make questions about math, but not about math. Yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> uh, all right. In a 2017 Tor.com article, Emily Asher Perrin noted there are six otherwise unrelated films written or directed by Shane Black, including Iron Man 3, that use X, quote, as an explicit narrative mechanism. She also cited a 2016 Entertainment Weekly interview in which Black commented on this commonality, saying in part, and here's the quote, I tend to think also that X just informed as a backdrop. The first time I noticed it was Three Days of the Condor, the Sidney Pollock film, where X in the background adds this really odd, chilling counterpoint to the espionage plot. I also think that X is just a thing of beauty, especially as it applies to places like Los Angeles, where it's not so obvious and you have to dig for it like little nuggets. At the end of the quote, what is X? Okay, so plot elements of Iron Man 3. Yes. Uh... So he thinks X is really beautiful. And um, has something chilling in the background of a spy thing, espionage thing. Yeah, so. And it's the, not obvious in Los Angeles, you dig for it. Uh, so do we know any other films Shane Black has, has directed? Because I do I, not. I do not. Okay. Do you know anything about the plot of Three Days of the Condor? No. Nor do I even know any of the plot of Iron Man 3. Okay, so I remember that, like, Ben Kingsley is an actor who, like, pretends to be a terrorist. Um, he crash lands in, like, near, like, a cabin in the woods in, in like, rural Tennessee, then gets captured by the terrorist group that Ben Kingsley is pretending to run, and then he summons all of his Iron Man suits and there's a massive explosion at the end. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Obviously, like, explosions are reasonably hard to find in Los Angeles. But that that can't possibly be the answer. <laughs> right. Like, and having them in the background, usually explosions are more front and center of whatever film they're happening in. Could it... Mm, mm-hmm. I don't know, like, could it be... An image I remember is, like, there's quite a lot of snow on the ground when, like, he crash lands in, in rural Tennessee. I don't know. I don't have a better guess. That's certainly hard to find in Los Angeles. That's true. Is there any snow in Iron Man 3? Yeah, I mean, like, there's quite a lot of it when he crash lands in Tennessee or wherever, I forget where. Oh, sorry, I thought you were talking about Three Days of the Condor, I got it. I, I, I know nothing about Three Days of the Condor, just putting that out there. Okay. But, like, I guess condors live kind of near mountainous areas where there might be snow. Just get going here. Okay, you know what? And snow is really beautiful, and it's yeah. in Los Angeles. So. And chilling. <laughs> and chilling. <laughs> Yes. Okay, I like it. Let's go with snow. Sure. All right. You locked in snow as your answer? Yes. Yep. Okay, so I'll pass it over to Mike now. Okay, just real quick, could you could you give me the list of movies that you mentioned in the question? I mean, the whole question, just the list of movies real quick. I did not, I did not, I, I mentioned that there were six otherwise unrelated films written or directed by Shane Black. The only one I mentioned was Iron Man 3. Okay, okay. Well, Shane Black famously um, got a start with Lethal Weapon, and he uh, also, I mean, he's, he's written a lot of stuff, actually, including Lethal Weapon 2, but Iron Man 3, Lethal Weapon, and 
two of my favorite Shane Black movies that are highly underrated, in my opinion, which is The Long Kiss Goodnight, which he wrote the screenplay for, and his directorial debut uh, before Iron Man 3 was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, also with Robert Downey Jr. And all of those are set, they are so close. But all of those four movies of the six that I mentioned, or, you, you know, that were, that are, you know, whatever, are set at Christmas time. So he seems to have a running theme of just whether it's snow or Santa Claus or Christmas lights in the background, just a festiveness of Christmas. Oh. So that was a very good job of deduction by Amanda and Jacob. You got in, you got to what was chilling, what's rare in Los Angeles, what's uh, present in uh, wintertime. But this was a specific X you had to solve for, and Mike is the one who got that it was Christmas. Man, we got really close. Y'all got, if y'all had kept talking, I felt that y'all probably would have landed on it. Oh. I don't think I would have, honestly. I don't think we would have further. I think that was as far as we could get with the little pieces that we had, but. Well, I just I know in 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 Long Kiss Goodnight, there's a really inventive action scene involving a dead body strung up uh, that, that 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 gets caught on a string of Christmas lights, um, oh. and it's just you know, and it just kind of sticks in my mind. So I I bet he really wishes he'd directed Die Hard then. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, one of many things I think Die Hard was kind of inspired by Lethal Weapon in. But yeah. he, uh, I, apparently, he actually, his original title, he wrote The Last Boy Scout. He actually came up with Die Hard as the title for that, and oh. uh, producers took it from him. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. This goes to Jacob and Mike trying to steal from Amanda. This okay. is a question about two people. One's 1959 recording of Money, That's What I Want, is usually considered Motown's first hit single. The other assembled the undisputed truth to showcase his more experimental production ideas and eventually left Motown in 1975 to form his own namesake label. Their joint songwriting credits include I Heard It Through the Grapevine, War, Smiling Faces Sometimes, I Wish It Would Rain, Just My Imagination, Wherever I Lay My Hat, which was later a hit for Paul Young in the UK. And uh, they're most known for what's called Psychedelic Soul, some of the most famous tracks being Cloud Nine, I Can't Get Next to You, Psychedelic Shack. Runaway Child, Running Wild, Ball of Confusion, and Papa Was a Rolling Stone. Name either member of that acclaimed songwriting duo. Okay, uh, I got this. Yeah, I, I read a Rolling Stone article on the th- on the hundred greatest songwriters yesterday, and they were oh, yeah? on this. Oh, okay. So so you know them both then? Um, it's like Barrett Strong and that's, that's the one else? that I knew. That's uh, the one that I knew from it, from come Money. To me, it'll come to me. Uh. I mean, you, you, you guess you said we only need one, right? I think you can just give Barrett Strong if you want to. Sure. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. I just I wanted to see if it would come back to you. Without, uh, but um, I don't think I don't think it's gonna. Sorry. Amanda, do you know who his partner was? No, I can't think of who. I knew Barrett Strong from Money, but no. Yeah, one of the most uh, I think talented producers in pop music of that era. His name was uh, Norman Whitfield. Yeah. Oh. That's, uh, that's okay. it. Okay. All right, but I will give these points to Jacob and Mike. And now Amanda and Mike trying to steal from Jacob. The Anglo-Zanzibar War, which saw the UK dethrone Khalid bin Bargash and install Hamoud bin Mohammed as Sultan of Zanzibar, is often described as the shortest war in recorded history. What decade did it take place in? Oh, man, this is literally what I'm researching. All right. Oh, gee, of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, One so decade? I- 
decade, yes. As in the calendar decade. I, I just I don't know, so I'm I'm up for talking through it, but if you've been researching it Well, this is his question. We're oh, trying to steal oh, from him. Oh yeah, I know. I lost track of who was who for a second. Yeah. Um Okay. Well, I mean, my only connection to English and Zanzibar together is that Freddie Mercury was born in Zanzibar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, I mean, maybe that gives us, if any, if that gives us anything about timing. Well, I mean, except for, I mean, well, Zanzibar doesn't exist anymore for one thing, right? Because it disappeared in like the '60s or '70s, I think. Right, because um, because Tanzania was a combination of Tanganyika and Zanzibar. Right, right. So, so we definitely know it's got to be, let's just say, pre nineteen sixties. Okay. I, <sighs> the shortest war in history. Okay. Um. And if sorry, I, w- I was actually trying to see if I could use the Freddie Mercury thing to be helpful at all because if the if he was living there, if they were British people living there. Yeah. Would that be then after that happened? Like then when it was under British occupation? Oh yeah, I mean I'm I'm sure it was, yeah. Um oh, okay, so Freddie Mercury wasn't he like forty six or something when he died? Yeah, and he died in the nineteen ninety one. Okay, so that would put him born in the fifties, right? Yeah. Uh ninety one minus forty six. Um 1945. Right. If I'm right about his age when he died. Um, so I, I would say that they had probably been occupied for like a while at that point. You know, Before, like it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like, like it didn't happen in 1940, and he was born there in 45 or whatever. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, I, I would say like even like half a century or something. Oh. It might not even be in the 20th century. That's possible. He said what usually when things I usually think of when decades are asked about, usually I think of them being 20th century decades. That's exactly. Not but yeah. I was inclined to say maybe like 20s or 30s, but I really have no idea. And I do feel bad about steering you wrong on Chad. No. Well, I mean, it happens. I, I know. Yeah. I mean, I'm not I would I would I would hedge a guess that this is turn of the century, like either the aughts or the 1890s okay just 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 i don't know this just just kind of the just what my gut is, is is steering me towards but for no reason you know i mean the 1920s 1910s as well but i i just kind of like you know the fact that you you know like, like i said you you think of a decade you automatically tend to think 20th century unless you've given some sort of you know specific you know, right. thing to, to latch on to. I mean, right, it's obviously, know, if you Yogesh, know when this war was, yeah. Yeah, we know Yogesh is tricky. He's demonstrated exactly. that already. So um, that's why I kind of like the aughts or the okay. 1890s. Okay, since I seem kind of stuck on the 20th century and um, you like getting it a little earlier, let's split the difference and go with the go with the aughts then. Okay, that's fine. Okay, since that was one of the ones you suggested and it's still in the 20th century, I, I like that. Okay. Okay, All we'll right. say the 1900s then. You'll say the first decade of the 1900s. Yes. All right. Jacob, do you remember how long the war was? I believe it was 38 minutes. I've seen Wikipedia estimates range from 38 to 45 minutes, yeah. I believe the British gunboat scored a direct hit on the Sultan's Palace, and it was all over from there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which decade was it in? And that happened in the 1890s. That was when Zanzibar became a British protectorate. 
Right. Oh, so close. I'm so, so sorry, close. guys. No, no. I just. You even. You better just not let me make any calls anymore. <laughs> no, because the next one you're gonna make is gonna be your call to make. So no, this is fine. I mean, I've, I've I haven't had any thunder on either of the ones we've gotten wrong. So I mean, okay. I'm. It's hard when something's on your short list, and then because then you automatically think, oh, if only. Yeah, I tell you, I'm I'm fairly good at narrow it down to you know two choices. But me personally, this is my this is typically my behavior. I'll <laughs> I'll have it narrowed down, and I'll miss the coin toss every time. So oh, that that's no. fine. This uh, is not you know th- th- this is not bothering me whatsoever. It's par for the course. For me, typically. Okay, okay. I uh, often make wrong coin, coin flips, too. Now, uh, Jacob and Amanda trying to steal from Mike. There he goes. In a rather unique crossover between Marvel Comics and daytime soaps, Springfield resident Harley Davidson Cooper was revealed in 2006 to be a superheroine who goes by what name? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have anything on this. I don't either. They so, said Harley Davidson Cooper. Could you repeat the first part of that? In a rather unique crossover between Marvel Comics and daytime soap operas, Springfield resident Harley Davidson Cooper was revealed in 2006 to be a superheroine who goes by what name? Maybe something funny like like Mini Cooper or... I don't know. He, said, he said daytime soaps. What? And I've never watched any of those or this era of The Simpsons. Uh, me neither. Um, it's enough for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do like your idea of Mini Cooper, though. Okay, I mean, it's kind of a cute little name. I don't know, could we think of any other good kind of catch thing that relates to Cooper? Yeah. Like, Ooh, what about Super Cooper? I don't know. But, I don't know, let's go with the first one. Mini Cooper, let's say. Okay, I like that the other one rhymes, but, you know, okay. Yeah. Are you lying in Mini Cooper? Yeah. All right, Mike? Okay, this this is actually, I, I you know, just... Just because my uh, obsession with with comics, you know, um, this is not anything that I got behind or saw or I think she made just a couple of appearances that might be considered canon or or maybe even not canon canon on uh, Marvel uh, Earth 616, which is the main universe. I think she appeared in like an episode of Power Pack or something, but um, (laughs) if, if you had known the soap opera that that character is 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 from you would have gotten it right away because they didn't really get very imaginative with her superhero name because her superhero name is also the name of the soap opera she appears on which is the guiding light oh so i, I grew up i do not know what that is that's I grew a soap up opera that's the, for a superhero yeah, I grew up in a city called Springfield, so I knew that there were two shows that were set in Springfield that were on TV when I was growing up. One was The Simpsons, the other was Guiding Light, which originated in 1937. So during that era when all of the soaps were going strong, it was often referred to as the longest continuing narrative in human history. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. Yeah. If you had just kind of looked at the names of what the soap operas were at the time, you might have been able to deduce it. But uh, yes, it was The Guiding Light. Uh, I am not doing well. All right, the next one goes to Jacob and Mike. (laughs) Trying to steal from uh, Amanda. 
why was Mario Kart not called Mario Speedwagon is quite possibly the funniest thing ever tweeted by what pun-loving screenwriter, who has to date received three Emmy nominations for a short-form series and Emmy for Redacted. Where okay, redacted. I, I know this cold. It's it's Megan Amram, an Emmy for Megan. All right. Yeah, so, okay. and, and she's also an excellent Twitter follow. So, Mike, yeah. did you want to weigh in? Uh, no, I mean, he knows it cold, so I'm, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, I, I usually I either know things or I don't. In this one, I know. All right, so that's uh, Megan Amram is correct, and that's four points for Mike and Jacob. The the, the only thing I have to add to that was there was um, video game based trivia uh, one night, a thing trivia, uh, and and I picked Mario Speedwagon as my team name. <laughs> but I had no idea that there was a, a, a tweet that existed before that. So Yeah, I, I've taken two team names from her tweets. One, Mario Speedwagon. The other was, uh, entrance mats are a gateway rug. I remember I had a linguistics professor who was, like, hazy on the notion of what Mario Kart was. So, like, he'd always call it Mario Wagon. <laughs> uh. And then at the end of the year, someone brought in his game console and we like taught him how to play since that class had no final. <laughs> it was nice. Sounds awesome. All right. Amanda and Mike trying to steal from Jacob. Okay. So in I the previous. Think- yeah. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I feel like there is too much overlap with what I know and what Jacob steals from me. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. There was a contestant last week who had an even bigger problem with that. Um, oh. It's uh, kind of a luck of the draw thing. Mm. For Amanda and Mike to steal from Jacob. In the previous episode, so the last one I taped, we learned about the mysterious vanishing of Congressman Hale Boggs and Nick Begich in Alaska. So despite disappearing, Begich was re-elected to his seat in absentia in 1972 over what man who won a special election the following year and has since represented Alaska in Congress, which makes him the longest serving U.S. congressperson who is currently seated in the House of Representatives. Hi. Mm. I- I feel like I should know this. Um, the only one I can think of is Ted Stevens, and Ted Stevens is dead, so uh, <laughs> it's not him. Do you have any? No, I've I've really got nothing on this. Um, I mean, so he, whoever this is, the, the only end that either of us might have is if you know who was the currently the longest serving representative in the House, right? That is what the question said. Yes. Wait, the longest-serving representative in the House? Yes, in the House of Representatives. I don't think I... Uh, I'm embarrassed people are going to listen to this. I don't I don't know. All right. well, you can always just guess a random last name and hope that it's right. Uh, do we go for the uh, ever-popular Lucky Johnson? <laughs> sure, sure. A strategy as old as time itself. There you go. <laughs> All right, so I have on occasion written questionable people with names like Smith or Johnson just to remind people that you should always guess. But yeah. uh, in this case, it's, it is not Johnson. So, yeah. uh, Jacob? Okay, it, if you look up a picture of him, this guy looks, like, incredibly Alaskan. Like, massive <laughs> beard, weird sideburn thing going on. And he's also fond of, like, the occasional racist remark, which is yeah. why I know about him. Uh, oh. The answer is Don Young. Don Young is correct. All right. Okay. Uh, good job. Good job. Yeah. Uh, next goes to Jacob and Amanda trying to steal from Mike. What southern constellation containing Canopus, formerly a part of Argo Navis, the one that represented Jason's ship, the Argo, takes its name from the Latin for keel or hull? 
That name is shared with an MCU character portrayed by Ophelia Lovabond, who is ripped apart by the Power Stone while attempting to use it against the Collector. Okay, so who's like the Collector's slave in Guardians of the Galaxy? Um, oh, um... It's something that sounds somewhat Latin, if that helps. Maybe, it definitely ends in uh. Wait, the Collector... So, I've seen Guardians of the Galaxy. So have I. I just don't um, remember this character's name. Oh, wait, are we... Is it the blue guy? Uh, no, that's... Um, that's Ronan the Accuser. It's like they fly to they fly to this weird guy's planet to sell the power stone to him, and then the collector's slave shouts, "I will no longer be your slave!" puts her hand on it and like attempts to kill the collector with it. And what's her name? Oh, I will no longer be your slave. Keel oh. or Hall? Um, yeah, I... Can, so what did that have to do with the Argo thing? I lost the thread of that. So, it's the same name as a constellation that got split off from a constellation named for Argo, and uh, it's Latin for keel or hull, I believe. Okay. Yes, that's all correct. Um, yeah. Mm. I, I, I just, like, know her as the collector's servant. Like, I... I have nothing. Right. I mean, you had more. You had more than I did. Um, it ends in uh though. Uh, and yeah. probably ULA. Like and maybe. And we're not talking maybe, about maybe. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying we're not talking about Nebula. That's Gamora's sister. No, we're definitely not. thing. Yeah. Okay. Maybe well. like oh, a, what does a keel do? It like regulates things. Maybe it's like regular. Ah. I mean, sure. I, I, I have no better guess. Like, I Okay. This is a complete shot in the dark, just to be clear. I was There's one point I was at the lead, and I've just steadily crashed and burned since do, then. Do we want to go with it? Sure. Regular. All right, regular. Yeah, so, yeah, you did not have nothing. You got pretty far on that question. But, um, Mike, can you get any further? Um, yeah, uh, mainly because in the comics, she's not his slave, but his daughter. And her name is actually Karina. Well, her, her full name is Karina Tivon, but in the movie, I believe she's just referred to as Karina. Yeah, and the constellation similarly is also called Karina, played by very talented Ophelia Lovabond. She also played Kitty in Elementary and starred on a very uh, underrated uh, little scene show called Hooten and the Lady, which was a fun uh, adventure show. Oh, but, like uh, careening, go careening off or something. I don't know. So that goes uh, three. Okay, that was the last question of the of this round, and that goes uh, three points to Mike. So at the end of the third round of competition, we have Amanda fourteen point two, Jacob twenty seven point one, and Mike thirty one point three. In the last round, each question is worth six points as a steal and five points as a specialist. There's potential for very huge swings. So this mm. is definitely not over. All okay. right. All right. Let's get started. Jacob and Mike trying to steal from Amanda. In terms of screen time, it's possible I've seen more of this man's work than any other filmmaker. What is the name of the man who directed more than 230 episodes of Happy Days and won a 1964 Emmy for helming the classic episode It May Look Like a Walnut of the Dick Van Dyke Show? He also played Robin Laura's dentist neighbor on that show. This oh, I got this. Oh, I, oh, trust me, I got this. Um, I wouldn't have had it without the final clue, to be honest with you, because... The Dick Dyke Show was one of my favorite sitcoms growing up as a kid, and I still love it today. I watch old reruns, and, and to me, it's just amazing how groundbreaking and ahead of the time it, it, it was. But anyway, he did direct uh, this. He, the, the actor did uh, start out playing their neighbor. He was a dentist, and um, he did go on to a very successful directing career. Uh, and uh, that actor slash director's name... Uh, is Jerry Parrish. All right. So you're locking in Jerry Parrish? Sure. All right. Uh, Amanda? Thank 
God. No, God. no. no it's so close. It's Jerry Paris. Paris. Yeah, I think Jerry I, I, I think the rule is, yeah, uh, leniency on vowel sounds, but not on consonants. And you did yeah. add extra H at the end there. His name was, in fact, Jerry. Oh, no. Jerry Good work, Paris. Here, but I knew that it was, oh, why did I add an H? Yeah. Because God happens to us all. I was feeling demoralized. <laughs> oh, man, and I knew it's so cold. God, oh, you have that so much information. You're go- oh, I understand the pain, but oh. but let it be some consolation to you that I was getting really down, so I, that helped. <laughs> okay, yeah. okay. All right, uh, and yeah, anyone who hasn't seen that, it may look like a walnut episode. One of the all-time greatest TV sitcom oh, episodes. Yes, it is. Oh, the yes. Dick Van Dyke show is real. I, it's such a good show, and yes, it may look like a walnut. It's great. Yeah. It's like right oh. in the heart of that when Twilight Zone was around. Yes, yeah. Yes, the Twilo Zone. All right. <laughs> All right, now Amanda and Mike to steal from Jacob. Sylvia Beach Whitman is the current operator of what celebrated independent bookstore in Paris? Her father named her for Sylvia Beach, who ran a pre-war bookstore of the same name that served as a hangout for the Lost Generation, and famously bankrolled the initial publication of James Joyce's Ulysses. The uh, wow. Okay, I can only think of one like famous bookstore in France. That's a good start. And it's called Shakespeare and Company. Hmm. I mean, I mean, if that's that's not it, I don't have a clue. I mean, I'm I'm not saying that is it. I'm just saying that's the only you know like bookstore of you know french you know note that that i could even i mean i mean if you put a gun to my head and tell me to name two i would say shakespeare and company and shoot me (laughs) (laughs) um well i I don't think i have anything on that unless the paris commune was a bookstore and not just a group of people hanging out but i think it was the latter um so yeah i um i say go with that one Okay. All right. So you're locking in Shakespeare and Company. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts, Jacob? Yeah. I mean, I've read A Movable Feast, and that figures is a reasonably big plot point in it, and I was struggling to come up with the name, but Mike did that for me, so. All right. Dude, Shane, yeah. Shakespeare and Company is correct. Yay! Uh, so... Good job, Mike. Okay. All right. Next question. This is Jacob and Amanda trying to steal for Mike. All right. Jessica Jones first appeared in Alias Number One, written by Brian Michael Bendis in 2001. Her television sidekick, Trish Walker, depicted by Rachel Taylor on the Netflix series, first appeared under the name Patsy Walker in Miss America Magazine number two. Within, I'll give you five years latitude. Actually, you know what? I'll just make this a decades question. Uh, in which decade did that debut occur? So Miss America number one. Could, could you repeat the rest of the question? Sure. Jessica Jones, a superheroine, first appeared in Alias number one, written by Brian Michael Bendis in 2001 series sidekick Trish Walker, played by Rachel Taylor, first appeared in the comics under the name Patsy Walker in Miss America magazine number two. Within or In which decade did that debut occur? So when did Patsy Walker first appear? Which decade? Hmm. Good lord, okay. So, okay, so the Miss America pageant originated in the late 20s. Um, sounds very, I think, yeah. I think that, so- that sounds close. I was trying to remember when and that like, originated, and I was going to say... But I'm not wait, sure wait, 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 wait. Maybe early twenties, but I'm not positive. So. So, but he he said it was like a Marvel series thing, and like Captain America started while we were fighting World War II, right? Miss America seems yes. like something that would be like that. That seems plausible. So 
I don't know. My my best guess would be the 1940s. Your of course Rita Descent. I think 40s sounds good. I think that I think that sounds like good logic. I have no idea, and that was like a heyday of comic time as well. So. All right, let's do it to him. Okay. 1940s. All right. So uh, again, this being a uh, Marvel universe, Marvel. The name Marvel did not uh, really come into use for comics until the 60s. So. Yeah, really, like, anyone kind of knowledgeable about comics, um, even if, so uh, Jessica Jones is kind of a late anchor point. She started in the 21st century. Her sidekick, Hellcat, or uh, Trish Walker, had her superhero introduction much earlier in the 70s. So really, anyone who's even a little knowledgeable about comics, you know, should have been restricted to 60s or later. Uh, not knowing about comics, though, kind of helped you, because... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Patsy Walker was not actually originally a superheroine. She was actually just a kind of like an Archie-like teen character who had typical uh, comedic adventures like uh, in Archie comics. And she was actually introduced in the 1940s. Oh, Let's go job. not knowing things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good yeah. job. That was, she a, actually... that was a bit a roller coaster of a reveal, you guess. <laughs> yeah, good lord. Yeah, she uh, actually predates Marvel Comics. She was uh, introduced under Timely Comics, which was the earlier name for it. All right, Jacob and Mike trying to steal from Amanda. All right. What 1998 book by Harvard philosophy professor T.M. Scanlon, prominently featured in The Good Place, is oh, hell yeah. titles the series' sixth episode? Okay, so Come it's on. what we owe to each other. It's what we owe to each other. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just watched The Good Place like two weeks ago. Oh, man. All right. So, yeah, not a lot of suspense there. It is definitely uh, what you know. <laughs> Why yeah. did I make that one of my categories? <laughs> what Probably. was it, The Good Place? Or more importantly, why did the previous person drop out and you had to sub in? <laughs> That's the real problem, because I think this clearly this combination was not meant to be. Yeah. It's, it's difficult to avoid with this format, because you don't, yeah, people list their area of interest, but you have no way of knowing what other things they know that aren't listed. So we'll move forward. Okay, we're, we're in the next to last cycle now, and pretty much anyone is still uh, has a chance of winning. All right, this question goes to Amanda and Mike, trying to steal from Jacob. Which state officially lists, quote, none of these candidates as an option in all state and federal election ballots? That option has won a plurality exactly twice, 1976 Republican primary for the state's at-large congressional district and the 2014 Democratic gubernatorial primary. The which Oh, you do? Yeah, it's Nevada. Okay, if you're, if you're uh, sure. Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah, that's that's just one of those odd little facts that just is rattling around in my head somewhere. So, yeah, it's I mean, again, I hate to spoil the suspense and, you know, jump on it and, and not talk it out. But uh, I, I just know that that is a, a constant. None of these candidates is always on the ballot in in Nevada and has been since the 70s, I believe. Wow. Well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And in 2014, none of the Democratic gubernatorial candidates could inspire more faith from the electorate than uh, none of these candidates. So, <laughs> it finished in first place. Um, all right. The next question goes to Jacob and Amanda, trying to steal from Mike. Some of these questions have been a bit wordy. This question is only six words long. So pay attention oh. to these, these six words. Dennis is asshole. Why Charlie hate? Oh, it's, it's like because he's a bastard, man. This is the... I, well, I was studying abroad in Jordan. This was like a this was like a big a big inside joke among us because like some of the people were like on the trip were like big always sunny fans. So we'd always quote it to each other, and this was one of the biggest favorites. So <laughs> it's oh wait, so before I remember, this is a super hard round. So I'm going to specify I'm looking for a very nearly exact 
quote. Oh, so, so, so could you repeat the question? Yes. Dennis is asshole. Why Charlie hate? It's, 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 it's something very close to Dennis is a bastard man. Maybe just sent, given the syntax of the previous words, Dennis, maybe it's just Dennis bastard man? Uh, I, I'm reasonably certain it's Dennis is a bastard man. I, okay, I, hey, again, your knowledge on this topic is, is far exceeds my own. All right, you want to formulate your answer? Uh, yes, let's just go for Dennis is a bastard man. Okay, sure. All right, Mike? I'm sitting over here, shaking, waiting for them to miss the question, so I can scream like Dennis did when Charlie didn't know the answer on the episode Charlie McDennis, and say, because Dennis is a bastard man! <laughs> yeah, oh, so, well, okay, so I have to make a judgment call, because conventionally, the, the, the question is going to be looking for the exact quote, which, so he kind of swallows the uh, so I can't quote it sometimes as because Dennis is bastard man, or because Dennis is a bastard man. And, yeah, Jacob left off the word because. Oh, come now, on. Well, now, now you'll guess, you did say exact or nearly exact. I, yeah? I, I, would, I would say that's as nearly exact as it gets. All right, I, I will lean toward leniency in this case and give credit to Jacob and Amanda. Okay. But yes, good good knowledge demonstrated by everyone. Okay, a good uh, knowledge had by all. All right, thanks. Good job. All right, that makes things extremely close now. We're bunched up pretty closely together and going into the, looks like the final cycle of questions. So each person will have exactly one specialist question at them and two chances to steal. All right, so Jacob and Mike stealing from Amanda. And this is, this one, I am going to be strict in terms of filling in the exact quote. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. All right. The first line ever spoken by the Fawns on Happy Days comes right after Richie timidly describes to him the events of a date he had the previous night. Richie says, we played chess. That is Amanda Squeaky. I'm going to listen. That's Amanda Squeaky. You can hear there. Richie says, we played chess. To which Fonzie, mishearing, incredulously replies, you played blank, blank, blank. What three words go into into those blanks? Okay. Maybe well, something about chest? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Um, but I don't know what... Oh, what uh, it's a three-word phrase, though. Chest. You played chest? You played... Like Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. We don't have to put chest first. If you, yeah, oh, maybe it's like he, you played her with, with her, her chest, chest or something. You played with her chest. Yeah, let's go for it. You played with her chest. Uh, if you're locking in with her chest as those three words. Yes, I believe yes. so. Yes. And I, I cannot see Amanda. I can only imagine what, how she's feeling right now. I retract uh, my squeak of joy. Uh. <laughs> I'm so oh, sorry. Oh, look, I'll have no offense, Amanda, but I feel vindicated from 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 Jerry Paris now. OK, <laughs> from, I, I, from 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 blowing one that I knew cold to to taking a stab in the and educated gas and getting it. Oh, my Lord. I understand how you feel, except that Jerry Paris Parish was a question of mine that you almost stole, and it was yeah. another question of mine that you did steal. Oh, <laughs> I know. Yeah, so uh, now yeah, we got the exact wording. <laughs> yeah, this is in the first half. The, the, technically, the pilot of Happy Days, Love in the Happy Days, was shown on Love American Style, but this yep. was the first post-pilot episode, and Fonzie again was at the time a minor character, not even uh, billed in the opening credits, and he only I think has one line in that episode. So 
toward the very end. Before that, he's a non-speaking character. But then when Richie, you know, says to him, uh, we played chess, he has his very first line of the series. You played with her chest? Yes. You could have. You could have made it harder by just saying, like, what was Fonzie's line, because yeah. even, like, not saying you play blank, 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 because, you know. I yeah. can tell you I have absolutely zero knowledge on this. <laughs> yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty, but um, it's hard to say in advance what's going to be challenging for who. Yeah. Yeah, it's true, it's true. All right. So this question goes to Amanda and Mike, now trying to steal from Jacob. Swiss author Friedrich Durenmatt had a supporting role in End of the Game, a 1975 film adaptation of his novel The Judge and His Hangman, that starred John Voight, Jacqueline Bissett, Martin Ritt, who directed The Front, the movie I mentioned earlier, and Robert Shaw. What fellow Swiss national, better known as an Oscar-winning actor, directed that film? And I'll give you a hint, speaking of 1975 and Robert Shaw, that same year, 1975, this man was Oscar-nominated for starring in the film of Robert Shaw's play, The Man in the Glass Boots. Oh, well, again, if it wasn't for that final hint, I wouldn't have gotten there. Oh. Uh, because I know him as an actor, not as a, uh, a director, necessarily, but um, he, uh, he, he actually won uh, an Oscar for Jur- Judgment at Nuremberg, um, and his name is Maximilian Schell. Are you sure? Are you sure? Wait, Judgment at Nuremberg, Maximilian Schell. I always get that. I get you confused with Max von Sydow. Yeah, no, two two different people. Okay, I, I and you sure you got you don't have an extra consonant or anything? I promise <laughs> I don't have an extra consonant in there this time. Okay, okay. All right, so you're locking in uh, Maximilian Schell? Yes. You're sure it's not Maximilian Schnell? I'm <laughs> sure there's not an N in there. Okay, hurry up. <laughs> yeah, Schnell, Schnell. All right, so uh, you get the, yes, you and Amanda both get the uh, six points for that. Yeah, again, I don't, maybe uh, in hindsight, maybe I should have left off that last sentence, but. Uh, uh, sh- Certainly one of because I never knew he had. Uh, I would a, not have a, had it. Uh, a career as a director. I mean, I really didn't. All right. So well, the uh, last question of the game goes to uh, Jacob and Amanda. Trying to steal from Mike. It's about one of my favorite people. So here's a question. Caitlin Olsen was freed up to do It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia by the failure of Kelsey Grammer Presents The Sketch Show, a 2005 adaptation of a hilarious British sketch comedy series that failed in the U.S. despite a massively talented cast. In addition to Olsen, the other pre-breakout stars in the ensemble were Mary Lynn Rice Cube from 24 and Mr. Show and many other things, Paul F. Tompkins of Bojack Horseman, Malcolm Barrett from Better Off Ted and Timeless, and what English comedian who starred on the original UK version and has since become a prolific panel show veteran, his sitcom Not Going Out has aired 10 seasons to date and is contracted for at least another three. Okay, so like, I'm reasonably certain the UK sex comedy they're talking about is Lovesick. Okay. Um, I do not know who starred in that though. Maybe, like, it definitely wasn't one of the Hughes, um, Grant Hefner or Laurie. I'm not sure you heard the question right. I didn't say anything about a sex comedy. I mentioned his own uh, BBC sitcom is called Not Going Out. Didn't, didn't you mention another 2005 series? Oh, The Sketch Show. Sketch, sketch Show. Sketch, not sex. Oh, okay. I suppose that was a reverse Freudian <laughs> slip. Uh... <laughs> Do we want to hear the question again? Sure. All right. So let's look at the part here. Uh, 2005, the U.S. version of the sketch show, its cast featured Caitlin Olsen, Marilyn Ricecube, Paula Tompkins, Malcolm Barrett. What fifth member, an English comedian who starred on the original U.K. version of the sketch show. He's also a prolific panel show guest and panelist, and he also starred and I think created a sitcom called Not Going Out, which has aired 10 seasons and 
contracted for at least three more. Okay, well... I have nothing. I Who, have nothing. Who's an English comedian? Um, Ricky Gervais, Craig Ferguson, um... Probably not either of those. Uh, Stephen Do, Fry. Oh, maybe? No, he was famous before that. Do you watch any, like, panel shows? Like, I, I guess that's referring to, like, Match Game, whatever have you. Well, Match Game type things, but it might be, like, a UK panel show. Like, you know anybody on, like, Only Connect or University Challenge? Like, Yo Gesh likes those. Things. No. Uh, if I were Yo Gesh, who would I like? <laughs> great question, great question. Uh, yeah. I have nothing. I don't either. All right. You just want to guess a name? Uh, Smith. Smith? All right. Mike? Uh, yeah. Um, this, this actually, uh, uh helps, uh, just watching a lot of YouTube because I'm a, uh, cord cutter and there's a lot of really good British panel shows that the full episodes are on, uh, YouTube, uh, some of them being, uh, the big fat quiz of everything and not that I don't remember him being on there. But I believe you're talking about a frequent guest on 8 Out of 10 Cats. And I think he hosts Duck Quacks Don't Echo. And his name is Lee Mack. I know him only from uh, What I Lie to You, actually. But I've seen him on many of the other ones, like 8 Out of 10 Cats Does Countdown. Yeah, yeah, What I Lie to You. I, I think he's been on um, Nevermind the Buzzcocks quite a bit, too. Yeah, I haven't really watched that since Simon, since Simon Amstel left. But, uh, yeah. His sitcom, I only, the first couple seasons are pretty funny. After that, it kind of ran out of steam, but it's, I guess, a consistent source of income for him, and it frees him up to do other stuff. But one of the wittiest men alive, I would say, his name is Lee Mack, and, you know, a good person to end on. So I believe we have now a final score of Amanda, 50.2, Jacob, 51.1, and Mike, 66.3, I think. This is Future Yogesh with an update. I accidentally gave Amanda an extra point for the Jerry Paris question and did not notice it during taping. The actual final scores are Amanda 49.2, Jacob 51.1, and Mike 66.3. All right. Good game, Dolphins. Good game, guys. Yeah, good, good game. Y'all had some really good steals in there. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, if we could just get kind of uh, I think it's customary on these things to give everyone just a one last shot to say anything they like. And I guess I'll go in uh, in reverse order of scoring. So Amanda has the last word. So um, we'll uh, start with Mike. Just anything you, you'd like to say. Um, uh, no, uh, this this is really fun. Uh, it's, it's, it's really different. Uh, I look forward to hearing uh, lots and lots of uh, episodes. Um, and I just want to give a shout out to my teammates on the Sinister Six. Um, Wesley Wells, uh, Dan Lundenberg. It's, it's really Lundberg. I'm notorious for mispronouncing his last name. And uh, Philip Sanford. Scott Barber and Jeffrey uh, Segerdin. It's always a joy to play with them, and I hope that they uh, can make it on here too to and ha- have as much fun as I did. Cool. Yeah, I I had a Pupquist teammate who kept trying to write down a name as Greta Thunderbird. So <laughs> I, I understand trying to add syllables to uh, Scandinavian names. All right, uh, Jacob. All right, my laptop battery is very close to death, so I'll make this brief. Thank you, thank you for having me, yo guest. This was quite a lot of fun. Congratulations to Mike. You had quite a lot of very impressive polls. Uh, yeah, go green, go white, I guess. Cool. And uh, Amanda? Uh, I'd say the real bad place is the friends we made along the way. <laughs> <laughs> this has been episode two of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Rout. Thanks for listening.